Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. This is the life of Mexican revolutionary and military leader Pancho Villa. I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Carter Roy. If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Historical Figures, you can find them on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. And if you like the show, we'd really appreciate a five-star review. Yeah, it seems simple, but it really helps us keep the show going. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and on Twitter at Parcast Network. Don't forget to subscribe because a new episode comes out every Wednesday. When most people hear the name Pancho Villa, the picture in their mind matches his most famous photograph. A thick-mustached man standing proudly with a big sombrero on his head and two bandoliers of ammunition across his chest. And that image is certainly accurate, because he was a military man of accomplishment, pride, and strength. But the full portrait of Pancho Villa is more complex because he lived a life of passion and violence. And many labels could be applied to him. A criminal and a man of honor. A revolutionary and a terrorist. A hero and a fugitive. He was a fighter whose successes often turned into failures, and a man who would dodge violent death on more than one occasion, only to ultimately become a victim. But before we deal with these contradictions, we have to go back to where it all began. On a large plantation in the town of San Juan del Rio in the state of Durango in northwest Mexico. Uh, that was where Pancho Villa's father worked as a sharecropper. Except he wasn't called Pancho Villa yet. His name at birth was José Doroteo Arango Arambula. In the Spanish custom, he took Arango from his father, Agustín Arango, and Arambula from his mother, Micaela Arambula. It was the 5th of June in 1878. Not much is known about Pancho Villa's childhood. Partly because where Pancho described his childhood in later years, he was prone to embellishment. For example, he claimed that his father was the bandit Agustin Villa. But that doesn't appear to be true. We do know he was the oldest of five children. He was raised on the Rancho de la Coyotado, the largest hacienda, that is a large estate with a plantation, mine, factory, or all of the above, in the state of Durango. And he was educated at the local church-run school. However, all he achieved was basic literacy, 
because he dropped out to support his family after the sudden death of his father when he was only 15. In these years, the young Pancho Villa worked a variety of jobs. He was a sharecropper, a butcher, a mule skinner, a bricklayer, and even, for a short time, the foreman for an American railway company. He was at the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder, but that didn't stop him from working hard and putting aside what he could to help his mother. He was equally devoted to his siblings. Although he moved away to the state of Chihuahua when he was 16, he returned to Durango to defend the honor of his sister. At least that is how the story was later told. Pancho's sister was sexually assaulted by the owner of a hacienda. When 16-year-old Pancho heard about this, he tracked down the assailant, confronted him, and killed him. Then Pancho hopped on a stolen horse and rode away. There's no way to verify if this actually happened, but it certainly fits the romantic narrative that surrounded Pancho Villa in later years. Namely, that he was a defender of the downtrodden and a fighter for justice. What is undeniable is, at this point, in 1894, teenage Pancho Villa found himself on the wrong side of the law. Whether he was wanted for murder or not, he fell in with a group of bandits in Durango. This is when he shed his old name. Jose Doroteo was no more. At first he went by Arango, and then he named himself Francisco Pancho Villa, most likely after a grandfather named Jesus Villa. Rechristened, Pancho Villa worked for Ignacio Parra, one of the most famous bandits in the region. For a young man in his late teens and early 20s, it was undoubtedly a glamorous life, doing what he pleased and answering to no authorities. But let's not overlook that he was breaking the law. Many describe Pancho Villa as a Robin Hood-type character who stole from the rich and gave to the poor. Certainly not every crime Pancho and his gang committed was to help out the poor. However, there were occasions when Villa stole from the rich hacienda owners and handed over the proceeds, or part of the proceeds, to the poor workers. There are also stories of him stealing cattle herds and giving them to the poor so they had meat to feed their families. There's even a tale of him giving an old man money to start a tailor shop. Whether they were truth or legend, or maybe a little of both, the tales made him a hero to the peasants. Of course, he was not so popular among the people he was stealing from. And this caught up to Pancho Villa in 1902, the year he turned 24. The Ruralis, the rural police force working for President Porfirio Diaz, arrested Pancho on charges of stealing mules and assault. Serious crimes. How serious? He faced the death penalty. Other bandits had been executed for the same offense. But Pancho Villa had a powerful friend in Pablo Valenzuela, a man who had allegedly received stolen goods from Villa. Valenzuela intervened, and Villa was spared. It wasn't the last time that having the right connections saved Pancho Villa's life. Still, there had to be some punishment, and for Pancho Villa, his punishment was forced service in the federal army, and this was common practice with troublemakers at the time. One can only imagine freewheeling Villa straining under the strict regimen of army training. It was a match that wasn't made to last. And it didn't. After several months, Pancho deserted and fled to the state of Chihuahua. He was soon back to his old bandit ways. His friends affectionately called him La Cucaracha. The cockroach, a pest who could not be eliminated. In 1903, only a year after his arrest, he killed an army officer 
and stole his horse. It was one more example of the dark side of Pancho Villa, where he followed his own rules and violence was always looming. He had a fierce reputation as a gunfighter. A friend later said his gun was more important to him than eating and sleeping. Men weren't successful in the world Pancho Villa inhabited without being a little bit ruthless. Villa prized loyalty, and if someone betrayed him, they paid with their life. And once they were dead, he'd steal their horse and ride away. For the rest of that decade, Pancho Villa continued in his outlaw ways, with occasional breaks where he'd go straight. Only to fall back into crime. It was during this time that he discovered another one of his talents, the ability to recruit. He found young men like himself and convinced them to join his gang. But in 1910, Pancho Villa's outlook on banditry changed. He was 32 when he met Abraham Gonzalez, the local representative of presidential candidate Francisco Madero. Madero was running for president against Porfirio Diaz. Diaz was running for his sixth re-election. Madero, who was not a politician but a wealthy landowner, was running for office for the first time. Diaz put Madero in jail and held fraudulent elections. Madero called for revolutionary action against the Diaz regime and declared himself the provisional president of the country on November 20th, 1910. The Mexican Revolution was underway. Abraham Gonzalez convinced Villa that he could hurt the rich hacienda owners and help the revolutionary cause. Villa took the advice to heart. He captured a large hacienda, then a trainload of federal soldiers, and finally, the town of San Andres. He quickly emerged as a prominent military leader for the revolutionaries. In fact, he was the first revolutionary leader to defeat government soldiers. He defeated the federal army in battles in Nica, Camargo, and Pilar de Conchos, but lost to Tecalote. But Villa didn't actually meet Francisco Madero until March 1911. At that time, the battle with Diaz was ongoing, but the opposition was splintering between Madero's backers and the Mexican Liberal Party, which felt that Madero was not radical enough. Madero ordered Villa to deal with the threat. Villa did, disarming and arresting the Liberal Party members and consolidating the opposition behind Madero. After this, Madero promoted Villa to colonel in the revolutionary forces. Now, much of the fighting at this time was in the northern part of Mexico, near the U.S. border. Madero worried these skirmishes would attract U.S. intervention. He ordered the newly minted Colonel Villa and his officers to call off their siege of Ciudad Juarez, a strategic border city controlled by President Diaz's backers. However, on May 8, 1911, Colonel Villa and General Pascual Orozco attacked Ciudad Juarez. They captured the city after two days of heavy fighting in the Battle of Ciudad Juarez. Facing defeat on many fronts, President Porfirio Diaz resigned on May 25, 1911. Francisco Madero was set to take over as the new president of Mexico. But it wouldn't be the victory they'd hoped for. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the ParCast Network. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. 
With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. And now, back to historical figures. Pancho Villa and the other rebels backing Francisco Madero had just defeated President Diaz, forcing him to resign. It should have been a moment of triumph for Pancho Villa, but he was about to learn an important lesson. The overthrow of a leader was only the first step. The trick was to find a new leader who would remember why he was installed in office and not be corrupted by power. The reality of the situation sank in when Madero signed the Treaty of Ciudad Juarez on May 21, 1911, and kept the existing power structure in place. The only real change was the man in power. This meant Madero kept the federal army, which had just been defeated, in place. The rebel forces, which included Villa, were demobilized and asked to return to civilian life. Villa and General Orozco demanded that the hacienda land seized during the fighting be given to the revolutionary soldiers. Madero refused, saying the government would buy the properties from their owners and distribute it to the revolutionaries at some future date. Villa could tell that he was getting the brush off. He cornered Madero at a banquet. His words were stark. Villa told Madero, You, sir, have destroyed the revolution. It's simple. This bunch of dandies has made a fool of you, and this will eventually cost us our necks, yours included. But Madero ignored the warning and continued to disappoint Pancho Villa. Madero named one of Diaz's supporters as his minister of war. Villa strongly disapproved. So did General Pascual Orozco. Orozco was already upset about Madero's failure to enact land reform. He also was ticked off because he felt that he had not been sufficiently rewarded for helping bring Madero to power. So in March 1912, he rebelled against the new regime. Orozco personally appealed to Villa to join his rebellion. But Villa's old friend, Abraham Gonzalez, then governor of Chihuahua, made his own personal appeal. Gonzalez convinced Villa to back Madero. Pancho Villa was now fighting against former partner in rebellion. Quite successfully, too. With 400 cavalrymen, he captured the city of Peral from Orozco's forces. As a military tactician, Pancho Villa often used the same method of attack that had been used by the Apache and Comanche tribes against earlier generations of Mexicans. Villa and his soldiers rode on horseback and came at the enemy at full gallop. And as they approached, they fired their rifles. It's not easy to shoot accurately from a horse at full speed, but Villa and his men had the talent and experience to do so. It must have been terrifying to be on the receiving end. Mm-hmm. In addition to his strong tactical leadership, Pancho Villa had strong personnel leadership. He often sat down with his men around the campfire and ate what they were eating. It endeared him to his troops and inspired fierce loyalty. It also ensured he wasn't poisoned, a legitimate concern for military leaders in his time. Another concern, 
General Victoriano Huerta. In the rebellion, Pancho Villa was fighting for sitting President Madero under General Huerta's command. But General Huerta had mixed emotions about Villa. At first, Huerta welcomed Villa and sought to bring him under his control by naming him an honorary brigadier general in the federal army. But as we know by now, Pancho Villa could not easily be controlled. This made Huerta nervous, so he switched tactics and turned against Villa. Huerta accused Villa of stealing a horse and called him a bandit. Villa took offense to his honor being questioned and struck the general. Huerta immediately had Villa arrested for insubordination and theft. The punishment for these charges was execution by firing squad. Villa appealed to two other generals, Emilio Madero and Raul Madero, both brothers of President Madero. They contacted their brother by telegraph. In the meantime, Villa was brought outside where he stood before a group of Federal Army soldiers. The firing squad prepared to proceed with the execution. Pancho Villa was an instant from death. But at the last second, a telegram arrived from President Madero calling the execution off. Once again, Pancho Villa had his life spared at the last minute. However, though he had saved his life, the president ordered Villa imprisoned. Villa was first sent to Bellum Prison in Mexico City, and then later that year, in June of 1912, to Santiago Tataloco Prison. While he was in Bellum, fellow inmate Gildardo Magana tutored Villa in reading and writing. Magana was a follower of Emiliano Zapata, a revolutionary leader from the south of Mexico who believed in land reform and was opposed to the rule of President Madero. After his transfer, Villa learned civics and history from imprisoned Federal Army General Bernardo Reyes. But Pancho Villa didn't study for long. He escaped from prison on Christmas Day in 1912 and crossed the U.S. border into Arizona at Nogales a week later on January 2, 1913. 34-year-old Villa was still in the United States a month later when President Madero was murdered in a military coup. General Huerta, Villa's would-be executioner, became the new president. Well, president was the title, but he was actually more of a dictator. Huerta moved to consolidate power. In March of 1913, a month after taking over, he had Abraham Gonzalez, Pancho Villa's mentor who encouraged support of President Madero, murdered. It was a foregone conclusion that Villa would take up arms against the newly installed President Huerta. The problem was he was short on men and supplies. When Pancho Villa returned to Mexico in April of 1913, he had just seven men and some mules. And this is where Villa put his talent for recruiting to work. He built up his force to about 200 men, who would become part of the dreaded Division del Norte Army. With men on his side, he set about raising funds. With the help of his newest recruits, he stole cattle and sold them in northern Mexico or even across the border in the United States. And sometimes the plan was even bolder. Train robberies. On April 9, 1913, he robbed a train of 122 bars of silver. That's worth about 3.8 million U.S. dollars today. The trouble was, he couldn't do much with stolen bars of silver. He needed cold, hard pesos to pay his men. The owners of the silver obviously wanted it back and, with the help of Wells Fargo, set up a deal to recover their stolen silver. Wells Fargo sent an agent to a secret meeting with Villa. And Villa took the bank agent hostage. 
Villa wasn't letting the Wells Fargo agent go until he could sell the silver bars for cash. Which he got. Wells Fargo delivered a ransom equivalent to $1.2 million in today's U.S. currency. Less than the value of the silver, but more than enough to fund Pancho Villa's army. Villa bought guns and ammunition from American dealers. Now he just needed to revolt. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Now the story continues. Pancho Villa was ready to revolt against President Madero, but a different revolt was already in progress. On March 1st of 1913, Venustiano Carranza, the governor of Coahuila, officially withdrew his recognition of the authority of President Huerta, declaring it unconstitutional. And he was quickly followed by the leaders of the Mexican state of Sonora, which withdrew its recognition on March 5th. Carranza unveiled the plan of Guadalupe to overthrow Huerta's government. Although Villa was not enamored with Carranza, he considered him the lesser of two evils and, with the help of his growing army, joined the crusade against Huerta. This movement against Huerta was called the Constitutionalist Army of Mexico. From 1913 to 1914, Pancho Villa saw his greatest political and military success. Fighting the Mexican establishment, he won victories at Ciudad Juarez, Tierra Blanca, Chihuahua, and Ojinaga. Villa considered Tierra Blanca, fought over the course of two days from November 23rd to 24th in 1913, his greatest triumph. Although the armies were relatively equal in numbers, the federal army had more artillery and were, in theory, more disciplined. But on the second day of fighting, Villa's men overwhelmed the opposition. During this time, John Reed, the journalist who would go on to chronicle the Russian Revolution, spent months with Villa, writing articles that shaped his image in America and around the globe. Reed painted a portrait of a gallant fighter who confiscated corn and cattle and used it to feed the poor. It was also during this time that Pancho Villa went Hollywood. Legend has it that in January 1914, Villa signed a contract with a leading American newsreel company. He allegedly agreed to allow movie cameras to film his battles in exchange for a large advance, paid in gold. It was the first reality show, 75 years before Survivor. Furthermore, at least one newspaper account claimed that Villa agreed to allow the studio to dictate the scenario for how and when he would fight, because the cameras could only shoot during daylight hours. Villa had to begin the battle at 9 a.m. and stop any hostilities by 4 o'clock. 
In addition, they occasionally had to stop to allow the cameramen to switch positions. The kicker in this supposed tale is that when they got back to the studio and looked at the footage, it was unusable. So they ended up reenacting the battle on a soundstage. It sounds ridiculous, and it is. But the story isn't completely untrue. It is true that Via signed a contract with the Mutual Film Company in 1914, but there is nothing in the contract about reenacting firefights or providing good lighting. All it did was give Mutual Film Company exclusive rights to film Via in battle, and in exchange, he was to receive 20% of the profits. But Via did make concessions to the film company. For example, he agreed to wear a special uniform that they had made for him, and at least one witness says Via repeated several shots where he rode up to the camera on a horse. The foray into Hollywood wasn't just an ego booster. Propaganda is an important part of any war. Via wanted to make sure his side's media portrayal was more sympathetic than Huerta's. Even given all that, the agreement between Mutual Film Company and Via broke down after only a month or so. Mutual decided to abandon the documentary about Via and turn it into a fictional movie instead. The film *The Life of General Villa* premiered later that year. It combined footage captured in Mexico with scenes played by actors back in Hollywood.、Uh, which is probably how the rumor about battles being reenacted in a soundstage got started.、Mm. On the real battlefield, General Villa continued the fight against President Huerta, controlling the northern Mexican military forces during the revolt. They got their name, Division del Norte, from their region. It means Division of the North. Villa's success on the battlefield translated to political support. In December of 1913, he was elected by local military commanders as the provisional governor of Chihuahua. As governor, Villa raised money for a drive to the south to square off against the federal army. He printed his own money and decreed it could be traded on par with gold Mexican pesos. In fact, his stature was so great at the time that his paper money was accepted by banks in El Paso, Texas, at face value. Pancho Villa also continued his revolutionary ways, confiscating gold from several banks. Forcing wealthy families to contribute to the cause, and taking land from the rich hacienda owners and giving it to the widows and families of his dead comrades. Villa used the money he raised to expand and modernize his forces with draft animals, cavalry horses, and mobile hospital facilities, as well as arms and ammunition. The Division del Norte used the new supplies and the rebuilt railroad to travel south and defeat federal army forces at Gomez Palacio, Torreon, and Zacatecas. The battle at Zacatecas exposed the rift that was developing between General Villa and his ally, Governor Venustiano Carranza. Carranza directed Villa to capture the city of Saltillo. Which did not have much strategic importance. Villa felt this was a delaying tactic, so Carranza himself could capture Mexico City. Nonetheless, Villa followed the order, captured Saltillo, and then offered his resignation. However, Villa's staff officers convinced him to withdraw the resignation, defy Carranza, and plan an attack on Zacatecas. Zacatecas was a strategically important railroad station that was heavily defended by federal troops and considered nearly impregnable. It was also the source of much of Mexico's silver, so whoever held the area would have a steady supply of funds. On June 23, 1914, Villa took his staff's advice. He attacked up the steep slopes of Zacatecas. 
Villa defeated the federal army in the Toma de Zacatecas, the taking of Zacatecas. It was the single bloodiest battle of the Mexican Revolution, with federal casualties numbering approximately 7,000 dead and 5,000 wounded. Villa's victory at Zacatecas broke the back of the Huerta regime. Just three weeks later, on July 14th, Victoriano Huerta left the country. But once again, Villa's military triumph did not bring about the change in leadership he was looking for. The power struggle between the different factions of the revolution came out into the open. The convention held to sort out the new government soon dissolved into civil war. On one side were Pancho Villa and Emiliano Zapata, and on the other side were Venustiano Carranza and General Alvaro Obregón. Once again, fighting commenced. 1915 was not a good year for Pancho Villa. First, he was forced to abandon Mexico City, then he lost a series of brutal battles at Celaya, at Trinidad, and at Sonora that decimated his forces. At the Battle of Celaya in April 1915, Villa's army had 4,000 soldiers killed and 6,000 captured by the enemy. Carranza seized the initiative by offering amnesty to men who were fighting with Villa, and one by one, they defected to the other side. By the end of 1915, only 200 men in Villa's army remained loyal to him. They retreated to the northern mountains of Chihuahua. General Pancho Villa was effectively reduced to guerrilla leader status. Another particularly tough blow for Villa came when he lost the support of the United States. In 1914, Villa was held in such esteem that he went to Fort Bliss and met General John Pershing. But by 1915, President Woodrow Wilson, who wanted stability from his southern neighbor, had decided to recognize Governor Carranza and effectively cut off Pancho Villa's American arms supply. It was a motif that occurred throughout Pancho Villa's life. An ally today became an enemy tomorrow. But Pancho Villa would not take an attack without striking back. Furious that President Wilson had cut off his supply of arms from the U.S., he plotted his revenge. The first blow came when a group of outlaws attacked a train in northern Mexico. Sixteen Americans from the American Smelting and Refining Company were killed. Villa admitted he ordered the attack, but denied he called for American blood to be shed. Then Villa took the next step, an audacious one, by initiating an attack on U.S. soil. On March 9, 1916, 100 of Villa's men crossed the border into Columbus, New Mexico, and attacked a detachment of the 13th Cavalry Regiment of the U.S. Army. They burned the town, seized horses and military supplies, and killed 18 Americans. There could be no distancing Villa from this. The bold action demanded a response. President Wilson ordered 5,000 U.S. Army troops to pursue Pancho Villa. It was called the Mexican Punitive Expedition, and it was led by General John J. Pershing. The very same Pershing who had met and been photographed with Villa only a few years before. Through 1916, Pershing and his troops were able to kill many of Villa's men. But they couldn't get Villa himself. Part of the problem for Pershing was that the Mexican people did not want to help an invading force. Even though Carranza reluctantly supported the expedition, his troops, too, resented the Americans and occasionally engaged them in combat. But the American forces could not retaliate because President Wilson did not want a war with Mexico. So Pancho Villa was protected by virtue of his pursuance being American. Yep. 
And ultimately, the expedition was called off in February 1917 because Pershing was needed to go to Europe and fight World War I. Pancho Villa remained free. One footnote to the Mexican punitive expedition, General Pershing's aide saw his first combat action here. That aide's name was George Patton. Hmm, interesting. Although Pancho Villa avoided being killed or captured by U.S. forces, his power was in decline. He remained active, but Carranza was now focused on the more dangerous threat of revolutionary Emiliano Zapata in the south. Villa's last major military action was a raid against Ciudad Juarez in 1919. He'd won two victories here in previous uprisings, but this time the raid failed. Villa continued a small siege in Ascension, Durango. That failed as well. In addition to losing his raids, he was losing his top lieutenants. Felipe Ángeles left after the failed raid in Ciudad Juarez. He was later captured by Carranza's forces and executed. And Villa's new second-in-command, Martin López, was killed at Durango. Villa was 41 and looking for an exit strategy. He decided he would stop fighting if it was made worth his while. His break came on May 21, 1920. Followers of Álvaro Obregón assassinated Carranza's top advisors, his top supporters, and Carranza himself. With his nemesis dead, Villa saw an opportunity to negotiate a peace settlement and retire. He sent a telegram to the new president, Adolfo de la Huerta, recognizing the new leader and asking for amnesty. Six days later, Villa and de la Huerta reached a peace settlement. Villa agreed to refrain from hostilities in exchange for a 25,000-acre hacienda in Canutillo, just outside Parral, Chihuahua. The remaining guerrillas loyal to Villa would reside with him and be granted a pension that totaled 500,000 pesos. And the 50 soldiers closest to Villa became his personal bodyguards. Pancho Villa was now officially retired as a revolutionary. You may be surprised to know that Pancho Villa did not drink, smoke, or use any kind of illegal drug. But if he did have a vice, it was women. As one biographer noted, Pancho Villa never bothered with conventional arrangements in his family life. This meant he married several women without ever getting divorced. He married Maria Luz Corral in May of 1911. Her mother was opposed, but that didn't stop the couple. They had a daughter who died when she was still young. Villa also had long-term relationships with several other women, including Soledad Seanes, Manuela Casas, with whom he had a son, and Juana Torres, who he married in 1913 and with whom he had a daughter. But in 1920, when he retired, his official wife was Astroberta Renteria. After his retirement, Villa and Astroberta had two sons. But it's theorized Pancho Villa was involved with more than these five women because he had 24 children. That's right, 24, two dozen. His last living son, Ernesto Nava, lived until the age of 94 and died on New Year's Eve in 2009. That was Pancho Villa's dream as well, to live to a ripe old age. And he settled into retirement at his hacienda in Chihuahua. On July 20th, 1923, three years into his retirement, Villa took a routine trip to Peral. He would often take his 1919 Dodge Roadster into town to run errands or do banking. Usually he was accompanied by a number of bodyguards, but that day there were only four men with him. On the way back to his hacienda, a vendor ran out into the road and shouted, Viva Villa! 
Just then, seven gunmen appeared and fired more than 40 rounds into the car. Nine bullets hit Pancho Villa, including four in the head. He was killed instantly. Three of Villa's bodyguards were killed as well, but one brave bodyguard shot one of the murderers and then was able to escape. Later, this bodyguard would claim that Villa said, don't let it end like this, tell them I said something. But because the attack was so sudden, Villa probably didn't have time to say anything. He didn't even have time to pull out his gun. At the time of his death, Pancho Villa was only 45 years old. The next day, he was buried in Peral City Cemetery. Thousands of his grieving supporters followed his casket to the burial site. Meanwhile, his men were stationed back at the ranch, worried that the government would follow up the assassination with an attack on Villa's headquarters. The six surviving assassins were soon captured. However, only two of them ended up serving jail time. The rest were commissioned into the army. So, who ordered the assassination of Pancho Villa? It's never been completely clear. One theory is that a neighboring landowner killed him in a dispute. But a more likely explanation is that Villa was talking about getting back into politics as the 1924 elections approached, and this threatened the people in power. Most historians attribute Villa's death to a well-planned conspiracy, which likely had approval at the highest level of the government, including from then-president Alvaro Obregón. A few weeks before Villa's death, a state legislator from Durango, Jesús Salas Barraza, wrote to Secretary of War Joaquín Amaro about his plans to kill Pancho Villa. Barraza's letter claimed that Villa was planning an uprising and requested that Amaro provide financial compensation to Barraza for handling Villa's murder. And after the assassination, Barraza followed this up by claiming sole responsibility for the plot. But whether he initiated the plan or was just the fall guy is debated. In addition to the letter, Barraza claimed to be getting revenge because Villa once pistol-whipped him over a woman. And he said he paid the street vendor to shout, Viva Villa, once if Pancho was in the front seat of the car or twice if he was in the back. Barraza was initially sentenced to 20 years in prison, but ended up serving only three months. More evidence he was aligned with those in power. Barraza showed no remorse, and his last words before he died were, I'm not a murderer, I rid humanity of a monster. Pancho Villa was buried in the Paral City Cemetery, but he could not rest in peace. Three years after his death, someone dug up his grave and stole his skull. According to local residents, it was an American treasure hunter who stole the head to sell to an eccentric millionaire who collected the heads of historical figures. In the immediate aftermath of his death, Pancho Villa's opponents, who were still alive, worked to downplay and repress stories about him. Thus, he was excluded from the official narrative of the Mexican Revolution. But the sweep of history is long. In later years, historians and others began to recognize Villa's important contributions to Mexico, the many battles he fought and won, his push for land reform, his support of the lower class, and his innovative deployment of military tactics. In 1976, more than half a century after he was killed, Pancho Villa's remains were moved to the Monument to the Revolution in Mexico City. There are few sites named for him, but in Mexico City, there is a train station named after his famous army, Metro Division del Norte Station. Fittingly enough, for a man who attracted so much attention from Hollywood during his life, Pancho Villa has also been prominent in popular culture since his passing. 
He has been portrayed in numerous films and television shows, and the list of actors who played V.S. stretches over the last century, from Wallace Beery and Yul Brenner to Telly Savalas and Hector Elizondo to Antonio Banderas. And that's just a handful of actors who have portrayed the revolutionary. Wallace Beery's film, the 1934 biopic Viva Villa, was even nominated for an Academy Award for Best Picture. Although one wonders if Pancho would be pleased that the movie takes its title from the last thing he heard before he was shot. He might not be happy that it lost the Oscar either. Villa has also appeared, either by name or thinly disguised, in novels and songs. As writer Octavio Paz wrote, the brutality and uncouthness of many of the revolutionary leaders has not prevented them from becoming popular myths. The perfect example of the popular myths appeal is the chain of Mexican restaurants in Southern California called Pancho Villas. I'm speculating here, but I believe Pancho would appreciate that it boasts the world's greatest mariachi band. (laughs) Still, the legacy of Pancho Villa extends far beyond pop culture. Wherever people are poor, downtrodden, or oppressed, there's the hope of a brighter future through revolution. And whether that revolution will come peacefully or through bloodshed, change is possible, thanks to those willing to fight for the citizens at the bottom of society. And one of those fighters was Pancho Villa. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Historical Figures. A new episode comes out every Wednesday, so don't forget to subscribe to Historical Figures on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or your favorite podcast directory. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and on Twitter at Parcast Network or through our website, Parcast.com. That's P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. As always, we thank you for listening. Historical Figures was created by Max Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Joel Stein and Carrie Murphy. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Historical Figures is written by Stephen DeLello and stars Vanessa Richardson and Carter Roy. <laughs>